This is New Books in Geography. My name is Peter Ekman, the host of this channel. Um, today we're talking with Allison Bick Hirsch, who's written a great book called City Choreographer, Lawrence Halperin in Urban Renewal America. It's published by the University of Minnesota Press. Um, Allison is, among other things, an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the University of Southern California, USC, um, and she comes to us today from Rome, Italy. Allison, how are you today? How's everything in Rome? I'm good. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic. Um, what brought you to Rome, if I can ask? Uh, yes, of course you can ask. Uh, I'm a fellow at the American Academy in Rome, which is an amazing place that offers annual fellowships to um, applicants in the arts and some of the art-related humanities. And we're here uh, for the year um, to work on our personal projects as well as it provides a platform to, to collaborate with um, people across the, the various fields. It sounds terrific. Um, I would, at, at the end of our conversation, I would love to hear more about your current projects. There's been a, a couple years since um, the book in question came out, um, but I'd, I'd love to get to that book now. Um, before we delve too deep into the into the chapters and uh, the arguments, the ideas advanced, um, I wonder if you could take a couple minutes to tell us about um, about yourself, your intellectual background, professional background, um, where you were from in a geographic sense, and essentially how you came to write this particular book. Yeah, of course. Um, so well, I'm originally from New York. As you know, I'm, I'm currently living in Los Angeles. Rome is an anomalous year for me, but it's been amazing. Um, I have a longstanding background in architecture and architectural history uh, with a particular passion for the history of landscape design, which uh, was stimulated by actually a semester abroad in Italy, a, uh, a course on Italian villa gardens that I can trace it back to, where I encountered this uh, revelation where my, my passion for spatial design and my love for the outdoors could be somehow conflated through this new field of landscape architecture at the time. This was an undergraduate in the study of how humans have shaped the biophysical world throughout history. So with uh, that combined interest in design and history, I originally attended the University of Pennsylvania with the idea of getting a degree in historic preservation, um, but to study specifically with a landscape historian, John Dixon Hunt. And during this process, I soon became swept up in the subject matter um, and continued to study with John Dixon Hunt for my doctorate. And during that same process, I thought it was essential that I understand the craft of designing landscapes firsthand. So I additionally got a professional degree in landscape architecture, which I continued to use through my own practice. So I was at University of Pennsylvania for quite a while. But it was during my first year at Penn that I discovered the landscape architect Lawrence Halperin, um, specifically through a seminar that was conducted by John Dixon Hunt uh, and Emily Cooperman, which focused on the vast archive of Halperin's work, which is housed at the University of University's Architectural Archives. Um, I can tell you the story of how it arrived there because Halperin had very little connection to Penn, but it's, it's a vast archive. It was during this year, which was actually 2004, that a number of public projects by Halperin were experiencing threats of demolition. So those included Skyline Park in Denver, Seattle Freeway Park, Heritage Park Plaza in Fort Worth. And, and those works became the subject of my master's thesis in historic preservation. And through the research both on site as well as in the archive, it became um, clear to me that Halpern's most consequential legacy was not necessarily the built works, um, but really the creative process, which had been shaped by a number of life experiences, most especially the artistic symbiosis he developed with his wife, the still active dancer and choreographer in the Bay Area, Anna Halpern. So, and that collaboration was extremely manifest in the drawings and the archives. So the book is about that creative process, and it's largely intended not necessarily to, to serve as an important history, but also um, to, to be informative for those 
who are actively shaping our cities today, and particularly as cities continue to undergo massive transformation. And, you know, in terms of the, the focus of the book, it, the title is somewhat explanatory. We're focused on sort of the urban renewal period in U.S. Um, urban development. Excellent. Um, that sounds great. Um, and what you've said, uh, well, it sort of establishes the structure of the book in important ways. Um, there's an introductory chapter. The first chapter um, delves into sort of the intellectual background of Lawrence and Anna Halpern and their and their symbiosis, as you say, um, provides a really interesting kind of um, uh, synoptic intellectual history of of landscape architecture, of uh, post-war urbanism in a lot of ways. Two chapters deal with um, Halpern's built work, some of these really iconic projects um, in Portland, in Minneapolis, and elsewhere that you've alluded to. Um, and then you turn in, in the last couple chapters to um, a set of community workshops that he that he organized, really focusing on, as you say, the, the, the process, which um, has its output in certain designs, but the, the, the process um, more than sort of the particularities of built form ends up assuming pride of place. So I'd like to move through um, uh, these different parts of the of the book, I suppose, more or less in sequence. But just up front, um, there there are there are two Halperns here, Lawrence as well as Anna. Um, who were Lawrence and Anna Halpern, and um, why should we uh, care about them? Yeah. Um, well, Anna Halpern, we can speak in the present tense. She's an active dancer and choreographer. She runs workshops on the dance deck that Lawrence Halpern designed and built for her in the 1950s. Um, but she has very much her own identity and um, presence in the dance world as someone who was seminal to what you know scholars often refer to as postmodern dance in the 1960s. She... Uh, I mean, she's had so many chapters of her um, her long history of, um, of of creative work, but her her most sort of consistent principles relate to sort of uncovering qualities of what she calls authentic movement and dissolving the distinctions between that's which what's considered sort of art with a capital A and the acts of everyday life, so the movements of the everyday. Um, you know, she's often situated in this period of the 1960s um, as someone who was making impact, particularly on the West Coast, but with in conversation, uh, a response and in isolation from what was going on on the East Coast. But she's often, you know, talked about within the similar frameworks as Merce Cunningham, who at the time was experimenting with chance procedures. Um, she was uh, involved or at least aware of the teachings of John Cage in New York and um, was influenced but, but worked in her own, um, in her own fashion by uh, happenings that were going on in New York. I, I don't want to conflate them too much because she actually was very much working in sort of individual mm -hmm. way that was very much embedded in the place that she was situated in the Bay Area. But um, there was some conversation between the East and the West Coast in the 1960s. So this is sort of how she became more widely known, um, and she's continued to make an impact on dance practice uh, since then, she um, had a significant impact on her husband, who was an American landscape architect that I think I could comfortably say had made a significant enough impact on 20th century American city that he might be situated in parallel to this might be a little bit of an overstatement, so there might be a little bit of um, uh, opposition to the statement, but he might be situated in parallel to Frederick Law Olmsted in the sense that he's had big, it's a bold statement, I know. Uh, <laughs> he had big public projects. He was um, involved in city shaping in the 1960s onward, I would say, predominantly the 60s and 70s um, in a way that, that really 
shaped our attitudes about um, public space um, and made it clear how our attitudes have evolved since then. Um, so, so I, you know, I, it's you know, a 20th century Frederick Law Olmsted. I'm not sure that might be a little too strong, but he ha- he had that kind of an impact in terms of um, not just the design of um, parks, but in terms of urban planning, urban design, regional planning, um, what he called ecological planning. Um, so, you know, he's not he's known to the more general public. It's clearly not a household name, but he's if he was to be known for anything, it would be the FDR Memorial in Washington, D.C., I think. Sea um, Ranch is another project that he did that has gained notoriety as an ecologically planned residential development in Northern California. Uh, but these are some of the bigger projects for which he's known, and, and his impact on sort of the urban renewal city has is um, the history that I was trying to bring to um, to light. His what's interesting about his career is he was actually active until 2009 until his death. I mean, he was he still had an office and he was still shaping spaces throughout um, not just the U.S., but throughout the world. Um, he had a particular connection to Israel. But his, I can say this in the first few pages, but his 65-year his career really reflects the story of post-war American urban development from the residential work in the burgeoning Pacific Coast suburbs to designs for regional shopping malls um, to his counterattempts to restore the social life of the city after um, changes brought about by federal policies, such as the Title I of the, the Housing Act of 1949, known as the Urban Renewal um, uh, Urban Renewal Policy, and the Highway Act of 1956, so some of these big um, uh, shaping policies in terms of urban and regional development. Yeah, I think the book really makes the case nicely that 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 Halpern is, you know, not not just sort of an isolated or convenient case study, but really sort of is a vector through which a much broader post-war history of urbanism, uh, uh, a history of the landscape architecture profession um, in this country, anyhow, really effectively can be told. And you uh, you, you 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 follow him through these various um, sort of intellectual and professional context in which he spent a little time. We hear um, names that will be familiar to um, any, I, I suppose, historically-minded landscape architect, William Worcester, Tommy Church, uh, various modernists um, hanging around um, the Harvard Grad School of Design, in particular at mid-century. Um, I'd like to focus on the, the, first, um, the first chapter um, uh, for, for, for a second. There's a really sort of amazing list of, of names and intellectual influences that that you see um, as achieving a sort of confluence in and through Halperin. We hear about um, the philosophical ideas of John Dewey, uh, Gestalt, psychology, Paul and Percival Goodman, Kevin Lynch, uh, the circle around the Regional Planning Association of America, um, various people making contributions to the sort of emerging discipline and science of of ecology and others. Um, I wonder if you could sort of pick out a couple of these and and uh, I- explain how um, explain how Halpern is kind of synthesizing some of these ideas, a sense of his intellectual background and the intellectual history in which um, he is uh, taking part. Yeah. Um, so. I guess I'll, I'll just talk about sort of his prime, primary influences, sure. um, which are both contextual and um, as well as in related to those who are working around him. Uh, clearly, Anna is one of those primary influences. That's more or less the, the impetus for the book. But um, you know, the time and place, the 1960s artistic, social, political, environmental activism that was coalescing at the time. Um, and linked by this public insistence on, on participation had a significant impact on him and the direction of his work. But his deeper influences, um, both in terms of his early life, uh, go back to his connection to the Zionist movement, um, which he, his mother was the president of Hadassah, um, 
he worked on a kibbutz in the 1930s, transforming the desert into microclimates that were more habitable for human habitation. Um, it's largely in that the, the kibbutz that introduces him to this, this investment in sort of collective creativity, which is a, a term that he uses often. It's actually uh, uses in the subtitle of one of his books, the RSVP Cycles. Um, he studies plant science and horticulture at Cornell. Um, he discovers the book by Christopher Tenard, Gardens in the Modern Landscape, which was published in 1938, he's a Canadian living in the UK, in which uh, in the book he discovers the, the landscape architecture exists, and he, he it's presented in the book as a social art, one that synthesizes positive social change um, and then uh, and the urbanized world. I mean, he's not his background is not. Uh, although he does come from a sort of agricultural perspective through the kibbutz experience, you know, he's, his work is urban, it's infrastructural, it's not um, pastoral. And, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm actually, I might be skipping a little bit into chapter one rather than talking about the, his sort of intellectual development and going slowly through his life. But, That's fine. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I realized that um, this, so he, he, he does, um, study plant sciences at, uh, at Cornell and then at University of Wisconsin, where he meets Anna Halperin. But he transfers to Harvard's Graduate School of Design, which is one of the, which is one of those um, pivotal moments in his life that you've mentioned, where he begins working under Bauhaus emigres, uh, particularly Walter Gropius, Marcel Breuer, uh, Laszlo Moholy-Naj comes for visiting workshops from the Chicago region, and um, this is in the early 1940s. You know, many of them had fled Nazi oppression. They were arriving at the Graduate School of Design, um, and there was a lot of energy um, it, it invested in, in that uh, period of time at Harvard. You know, many attribute the Bauhaus as, as one of the sort of precursors to the failures of 20th century urban planning and design. Um, you know, Halpern talks a lot about this idea of, you know, he dismisses the idea that the Bauhaus was fetishized form over process. He actually claims that the Bauhaus and Gropius was devoted to eliminating the distinction between art and craft of the everyday. So the idea to, to eliminate sort of the elitism of, of the art world by synthesizing um, the arts and crafts um, that, that the Bauhaus did in the 1920s, or 1919 actually. So he, he talks about it as a culture of, of collaboration and a synthesis across the arts. He talks about their emphasis on process um, in terms of, of this synthesis and collaboration. And, and most essentially what he was impacted by is the devotion to a, a design contributing to positive social change. So, you know, while the Bauhaus, Gropius, you know, even as he worked at the Graduate School of Design, was, t was talking about the standard, standardized solutions to widespread social problems between the wars. But... Um, you know, they, that had a significant impact and it resonated with Halpern who had this ex previous experience on the kibbutz. And, um, so, you know, this, this idea of working for positive social change through the design of the urban environment was significant to him. Um, Oscar Schlemmer was a, um, active in the Bauhaus in the 1920s. He ran what was called the, um, the performance workshop, um, and Anna took on that role actually at the Graduate School of Design in a way. She was active in Larry Halpern's work at the Graduate School of Design where he, where she actually led workshops where designers would create sort of spontaneous environments using materials and furniture in the room and have the, have those designers move around in them to experience, um, the nuances of, of spatial design. Um, so, you know, these are some of the primary influences. In terms of um, 
let's see, sort of intellectual development. Yeah, I could I could talk about a lot of different areas. Um, he was significantly impacted by the um, early environmental movement. Um, and Ian McCarg, who went on to publish the book Design with Nature, was a significant um, uh, had significant impact on Halperin's attitudes. But also, they were in conversation, and actually, it's through Ian McCarg that Halperin's work ended up at the University of Pennsylvania. McCarg actually set up the landscape architecture program at, at Penn, um, or he sort of reignited it, and they were in close contact. Um, what's interesting about Halperin is um, he was um, sort of preempting changes in um, ecological thinking that McCarg had not yet. Uh, well, McCarg never actually moved from this idea of the idea of ecosystem ecology or the equilibrium paradigm, where um, he believed in the sort of closed, predictable behavior of the, he calls the biosphere, acting as a sing, single superorganism. But Halpern really preempted this evolutionary shift in the field that began to acknowledge the dynamic nature of communities and ecosystems and their interrelationships. So he talked a lot, Halpern in particular was inspired by the language of disturbance and discontinuity and um, integrating opportunity for choice and chance in the environment. So it's interesting because he both looks to, he both draws parallels with McCarg's work, which is um, emerging simultaneously, this sort of rational method. He's actually an early precursor to GIS um, mapping, but but Halpern's really talking about um, a much more open-ended, um, dynamic nature of um, ecological thinking. That's, that's, and, that's great. Yeah, and that's, I mean, so the book is largely related to this idea of scores, which come out of his experience with Anna, but he uses it to the sort of open-ended nature of um, Anna's work, in terms of its connection to happenings, if I'm going to contextualize it in something that people might be more familiar with, um, the sort of open-ended, sort of catalytic nature of the open score, he connects that with, to the the, um, the environments or the elemental places that he he studied closely, like the High Sierra, for instance. Yeah, I'd like to ask a little bit more about um, a couple of his uh, his and their um, concepts specifically. Um, this, the, the broad sweeps of this um, intellectual history are terrific. I think the book does a tremendous job putting it all together. Um, but the concept of um, choreography, which, of course, is in the title of the book, um, the concept of scoring um, coming in, as you say, from sort of the world of dance, um, end up being crucial, um, crucial instruments here. They're, in a certain sense, sort of metaphorical concepts, but in another sense... Not um, in another sense, they're absolutely crucial to the um, the process of design, the sort of reciprocal interactions that make up that um, that make up that 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 practice. Um, so scoring and choreography, and also the different um, uh, really incredible notation systems that they developed um, in conjunction with these concepts, which which the book. Um, a, a visually very arresting book, I think, uh, displays beautifully. I would uh, direct readers to I- inspect these these images very carefully, and I think Minnesota did a, a, a very nice job um, uh, making them uh, legible and 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 vivid and uh, provocative in all these ways. Um, but I'd like to focus on these concepts: scoring, choreography, the notation systems as concepts. Um, in, in the practice of design and, in a sense, as concepts that contribute to social theory, spatial theory, aesthetic theory more broadly. Um, what are these concepts doing for the Halperins? So the, I mean, the book starts with an introduction to what the Halperins called the RSVP cycles, which, you know, despite my attempts at explaining them, can be a little impenetrable <laughs> because, in some ways, they're they're a point of reference rather than a really strict framework. Mm-hmm. But you know, RSVP stands for resources, 
uh, scores what they call value action, which is intended to refer to um, a judgmental part of the process and ultimately performance. And, um, you know, I, I could go through each one of these terms. Um, I'm not sure if that would be helpful in this situation, but scores are, are, are the predominant aspect of this process and the ultimate performance. So in terms of scores, um, you said it, it's used both metaphorically and quite literally in the sense that scores become a means to direct, guide, uh, possibly manipulate public process later on. Uh, but when we're talking even about the built work, the idea is that Halperin adopted this notion. I'm sorry, I should specify who I'm talking about. Larry Halperin adopted this notion of the open score. He adopted that from some of these experimental performance techniques that Anna was undergoing um, and applying those to designing public spaces as scores themselves that were intended to stimulate what he called open-ended kinesthetic response. He then, he applied to the, the, the places that he was designing by, I think this is a little bit what you were talking about in terms of situating within aesthetic theory, but, you know, he, I can talk about this more at length, but, and I, and I, I refer to it from time to time in the book just as a, a sort of a reference, but he's attempting to find what he calls primordial sources of form, and he looks to the natural world. I, I cringe a little when I say natural world. I, he even would say cringe a little, because um, what does that even mean as something other than um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the human constructed world, but uh, the sort of elemental raw places like the High Sierra, um, he thought that he could uncover sort of archetypal forms from these environments that would have the resonance to um, communicate and trigger across diverse publics um, an open-ended response. So, so that's when he was talking about open scoring his designs, which are heavy-handed. I mean, I came from this, came to this work uh, as someone looking exclusively at the built work and thinking about it from a preservation perspective, um, acknowledging that many think that his work is heavy-handed, um, among you know, a lot of criticisms of the built work. But, um, but he was really searching for this idea of an underlining universal form that that would have. Um, cross-cutting resonance. Um, he also used the language of scores more literally by adopting these um, sort of temporal situational guidelines that one might um, understand from happenings or performance events going on in the 1960s to structure public participation workshops, which he called the take part process. And we can get to that. I know that that's not, I'm not going in order, but he used this, this language of scoring um, both um, to refer to his built work, that it, 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 the work itself triggers this kinesthetic response, and he used it quite literally, where he and his firm acted as choreographers to, um, through varying levels of control, um, uh, attempt to get individuals who are coming from different uh, points of reference to arrive at what he called the common language of environmental awareness. So he's, so, you know, he's using these ideas in these two different ways. And that actually was what contributed to the structure of the book where it's really about the built work and then the workshops, despite that that's not chronological. I mean, they're going on more or less at the same time. Uh, the built work, it's interesting because it, some of the, now I'm going off on a little tangent. I'll come back to choreography, but that's fine. the built, the, the built work, did inspire, some of the early built work did inspire him to start the take part process <laughs> because he recognized that when the community's not on board, there will be obstacles to implementation. And, uh, you know, that's sort of foreshadowing a little bit about the sort of critical angle, even though I'm celebratory in a lot of ways, but the, the, there are significant criticisms of Halpern's process um, um, that, you know, um, that 
you know, that, that it, the take part process was not uh, necessarily about social justice, um, which we can talk about also, but it was really about getting everyone on board, <laughs> you know, so that, you know, so that ultimately this project could, could be, um, seen to its completion. So, but to, to go back, I mean, that, that'll, that, that's a whole other area that we can talk about, but the, in terms of choreography and scoring, I mean, he's working, the book is focused on the 1960s. He's reacting to this, this widespread public demand for social and political participation. Um, the open scoring technique that he's borrowing from performance is a way of um, talking about city planning that is different than uh, the, the inheritance of master planning. Um, you know, he's re he's often coming onto projects where he's serving more or less in a mitigate a mitigating role, uh, where he's seeing this the sort of failures of urban renewal starting to. Uh, really surface in terms of widespread displacement and um, reactionary protest. And he sees the city not as something that could be fixed and totalized in these singular master plans, but the idea that scoring the city is really about understanding uh, the dynamic, transformative speed of the city as it changes. And, you know, he's making connections between scores and sort of master plans um, and that's what you're starting to see when you talked about the notational drawings is he developed a system called motation uh, after movement and notation. Excellent. And yes, <laughs> where he's I mean, he's here. He's also influenced by um, movement notation systems like Lobano notations and other uh, means of both. For, well, really recording um, uh, dance. But uh, he, he talks about motation as not just a recording system, but a way of sort of generating form. So starting with movement, he's actually sort of recording movement in the city and using those notations as an impetus to start to design form that either works to enhance that type of movement or manipulate that type of movement or um, transform that, that movement. Um, so he's it's. It's a little bit of a clumsy process, and I think it, it, that becomes clear when you see that he, he rarely uses the motational system. He writes about it, and he, um, he makes these beautiful drawings, but a lot of his work is um, coming out of practices of drawing, not necessarily relying on this sort of the strict notation that one might see in you know a typical musical score or in a Labana notation. So he's he's always using this drawing language of of, of starting with movement. Um, so you see a whole range of notational systems that are not necessarily within this exact framework. But um, you know that he even draws a number of scores for Anna's work. So you know they're they're very much both. In communication, in collaboration, and working, you know, more or less in symbiosis in their own individual worlds. Great, yeah. Uh, bodies in motion through a space, and th through a space that the designer has uh, determined also to be alive and itself in motion. Very different kind of object. Very different kind of task. Um, and these these questions of yeah, uh, embodiment. Uh, materiality of landscape, mobility, all, all come bound together in really, really interesting ways, um, in their theoretical utterances and through the, uh, the, the projects of design and, and all the challenges of participation that come along with it. And I think this would be great interest to, um, anybody who has been asking these, uh, sort, sorts of theoretical questions about, um, about space and society more broadly. I would love to turn to some of these, um, some of these projects, some of these built works and, um, the, uh, different sort of, uh, workshops, um, iterated around them. Um, you've pointed up some of the, some of the key, uh, tensions here. Um, on the last page of the book, you say, as the studies of both his built work and his workshops, uh, should reveal, um, the projects emerge from fierce tension between openness and control, enabling and imposing, catalyzing and designing, a tension that arguably strengthens the body of work 
as a provocative manifestation of the essential idea that design is an act of inquiry rather than a set of solutions. And another language that you uh, sort of imposed before, the uh, the distinction between choice and chance. Halpern believes in both of these, but they they are in tension in an important kind of way. Um, so I wonder if we could look at um, you know one or two crucial projects here that sort of um, that sort of distill these tensions um, in an interesting way for you. Maybe one sort of iconic case of his in which. Um, they're more or less resolved, and another one in which they're essentially not. Yeah. Um, so a number, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this a couple of times, but it's coming at this from a preservation perspective. I mean, if we're going to actually talk about the built work, which in the book I really focus less on, uh, well, I, I try to synthesize both the process that went into building them also talk about um, the forms themselves as well as the reception to those forms, um, both in the 60s and today. Um, and I think what's interesting is upon reflection in terms of the built work, you know, many think that um, these spaces don't resonate. <laughs> they no longer resonate because they're a relic of their time and place. And I, I could talk about that a little bit more. It has less to do with this tension between openness and control, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, he, Halpern did talk about his spaces having this universal resonance. He did talk about um, their openness to adaptation through time. And yet, um, you know, part of it is just... The, the nature of cities becoming increasingly more consumer focused. Um, but part of it is, you know, how, you know, thinking about how these spaces are open to accretion and, and how limiting they actually are in that sense. But, um, one project that, you know, I, I think is well known, um, but worth re- you know, talking about here is, the Portland open space sequence um, as a, a pretty good embodiment of this balance between um, but openness and uh, not openness and control, but but, but open openness um, and sort of the, the catalytic nature of his work to instigating both um, the, the continuing public space. Um, and urban development within Portland, as well as, uh, you know, simply evoking joy in the city. And this is a, a sequence of, of open spaces that have a particular ecological narrative that runs through an area, the South Auditorium Urban Renewal Area, which at the time in the early 1960s was not um, sort of the one of the classic examples of urban decline uh, in, earlier in that um, the 1950s, it was large portions of it were demolished. It had been um, an area, a mixed immigrant area in particular, um, with you know varying levels of vacancy. But you know, sort of the, the common story of significant displacement for uh, where cities were through the Title One were given significant amounts of money to to, to basically clear what was deemed blighted, so I hear the term slum clearance, but, um, and were then, re- cities themselves were responsible to entice public investment. So, so you know, Halpern came in as one of the, you know, the, the mediators who were attempting to entice that investment. I mean, they, they, a number of his work was, uh, most of his work was publicly funded. It wasn't a part of the private development. But regardless, the, so in Portland, um, what he designed was uh, was in some way ameliorative. I mean, he, he he was brought on by the city in the early 60s um, to uh, sort of mitigate what was becoming sort of bleak superblock development, uh, a design in this, this area of the city uh, that was – Generated by SOM, the major architectural firm, and um, you know his work was really recognized as something that might entice new residents and, and serve new office workers, and it, it 
um, has been well preserved because of public value, but it did go through periods of decline. But it, what's interesting about it is it, it has this sort of ecological narrative from um, a fountain sort of barely recognizable that is evocative of you know, a mountain spring called the Source Fountain. And the, the sequence of spaces, which again is intended to provoke movement through the city, is um, uh, moves along this ecological narrative. So from the Source Fountain to what's called Lovejoy Fountain, which is intended to embody the accelerated force of mountain springs as they crash over rock forms that are shaped by erosion, then ultimately to what's called Petty Grove Park, uh, which were linked was linked by these tree-lined uh, malls that opened up onto uh, into this space of wooded uh, knolls which is intended to evoke the, the, the mountain foothills. And then ultimately, later on, he gets the commission to continue that sequence or that network onto auditorium porkroller, now known as the Ira Keller Fountain, which um, has had much more of a civic feel. Um, it's open, more open to the street. And, you know, in terms of metaphor, it's, it's clearly reflective of dramatic waterfalls of the Pacific Northwest. Um, it also acts as a uh, sort of a... a counterpoint stage to the Civic Auditorium, which is across the street. But, um, you know, in terms of its ability to sort of instigate, catalyze um, movement response, I think it's really successful. And it, so in a way, it, it demonstrates this idea of being an open score. It has gone through periods of decline largely due to um, context. I mean, two of the spaces are surrounded by residential development, so they're sort of hidden. Um, you don't have to seek them out, but um, there's been a significant amount of public effort to recognize the value of those spaces. It also, they also served as the sort of beginnings of the city really understanding the value of public space. Um, you know, later on, they go on to develop um, uh, transit-oriented open space um, into the Pearl District now. There's a number of open spaces all activated by, by water in particular. So, um, you know, that's a, a really successful space. Actually, interestingly enough, in 2008, there was um, what was called a city dance, and it was a celebration of the Halperin's contribution to the public life of the city, and it was both a sort of improvised citywide dance as well as a choreographed performance in and through these spaces, and it was actually really successful at getting more public interest um, in these spaces and saving them. Um, in terms of openness and control and the, those really sort of fierce tensions that I talk about, that is, I would say, most manifest in his take part process. And, um, you know, I've written at length about this process. It seems to be the part of the book that has um, uh, the most readership. <laughs> and, you know, people are really interested in um, this process and how it might inform public process today. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's, again, he's responding to his context, sort of mass public mobilizations of the 1960s. And, you know, we're, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, urban renewal programs becoming increasingly suspect. President Johnson, he, he uh, institutes the Great Society programs and his war on poverty. And he, he attempts to sort of mitigate some of the social and eco economic damage caused by the lack of comprehensive planning to address this declining urban core. Um, but a lot of his initiatives um, are deemed uh, what Sherry Arnstein who was a chief advisor on citizen participation at HUD called, you know, placating citizens at best. And so Halpern became interested in a, developing a participatory process that was not necessarily, I mean, it's interesting because he's unlike Paul Davidoff, who was a urban planner who created um, what was eventually called advocacy planning 
or unlike the well-known community organizer Saul Alinsky, you know, Halpern was not necessarily working for social justice as his primary cause. He was really devoted to this idea of unleashing what he called collective creativity. And that did, again, as I continue to go back to this idea of him coming from the kibbutz experience, this idea of this sort of mass standardization that he was exposed to from the Bauhaus individuals, this idea that there is some universal collective, some point of reference that you know, we we all as humans can relate to and, and can be unleashed through um, in, through choreographic processes, which is what Anna was working on at the time. Uh, you know, just to, to sort of complete that thought, um, you know, Anna, as she moved into the 1970s and, uh, you know, across the artistic avant-garde, people were beginning to recognize, you know, or, or, or to diverge from, this idea of aesthetic essentialism and, and move into sort of the endless pluralities of experience. Halpern really stuck to this idea that, you know, that there were archetype, archetypes, primordial or primal response that he could unleash through this take part process. So it, it, was, it was interesting and it's very much influenced by Anna's work in Gestalt therapy, um, you know, um, and uncovering what she called authentic movement. So his interest in the collaborative process, as I mentioned, was not entirely based on, um, you know, this unsocial justice, but on often, you know, optimizing potential for implementation. So of his designs. Uh, and, you know, I think that's where this idea of there's a chapter that I call um, facilitation and or manipulation when I talk about the take part process. And, um, it's a, you know, it's a means to recognize that this process, which had a frame, a very specific framework, was um, not about open-ended generation of creative ideas, but um, to really enable, in some way, participants to discover what what this, the firm had in a way already concluded based on, you know, longstanding environmental values work in cities across the nation. And um, it was a way of of being both transparent in some ways um, to getting people on board um, and, um, and, you know, experiencing uh, the environment through what, you know, the the Halperins would call fresh eyes or um, moving beyond cultural stereotypes or limited cultural experience into other people's experiences. And so, you know, taking part, I know we have limited time, so I thought maybe I'd just talk about taking part a little bit and then I'll talk about this, this tension, um, that, that emerges, but it, it's based on the RSVP cycle. So our resources, which, um, to him are, uh, intended to refer to the sort of pre-existing site conditions and the act of inventorying them to determine their their potential for informing design. Scores are these temporal situational guidelines. Value action is a term that uh, they coined for the sort of critical feedback process. Um, and then ultimately the performance of the scores or the acting out of the scores. So how that manifested in, in uh, the, the workshops themselves was they would well, Halperin and his firm would score the workshops by creating guidelines for a set of experiences that emphasized environmental awareness. The idea was to optimize creative energy amongst the group. And that always began with what was called an awareness score or a city, often also referred to as a city walk to get participants immediately interacting with their environment. And those activity scores were to be performed by the workshop participants and they were off, uh, they were choreographed in this sequential and progressive manner to build up this mutual foundation for the diversity of participants. And, and the idea was, you know, that Halperin could, or his firm could really do enough resource gathering to understand what would a community cross section look like. And um, there's extensive notes in the archives about how he gets um, individuals from sort of the, the various groups that he, uh, um, that he believed the design would have, uh, or the, the area had impact on. So, so this idea is that participants were chosen as this community cross section. Many of them did not share a common background. So the, the activities for the two to three day workshops were intended to foster this shared experience 
from which, in ideal circumstances, the group could develop a common language of environmental awareness, that's his term, and move forward in a collective way. So you can see the sort of optimism of this idea, um, how it might manifest on the ground, but uh, the, the, the feedback and sharing sessions were intended um, to take place after the awareness scores out in the immediacy of the environment, where groups would come back into a workshop space and... Um, uh, and share with one another in terms of what they experienced in those scores and do a number of exercises, role-playing exercises, um, sort of scenario planning exercises, and often have to um, communicate using nonverbal means. So drawing, um, again, as I mentioned, role-playing. Uh, so the idea is that this was not a consensus that was arrived at through um, sort of um, discursive means, but often through these nonverbal means as a way, again, of sort of getting to the, the commonality amongst the group. And the hope was ultimately a, a consensus plan would emerge. And he really did believe in consensus. Again, this is related to this idea of, of a, 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 an investment in this uh, common universal. But, um, but the awareness scores were intended to be uh, means to experience other people's environments, their daily encounters, and so on. And so, you know, why I talk about this tension is uh, between openness and control is because there, there is, I mean, there is a lot of question about, you know, how how highly choreographed were these scores? I mean, was were the awareness scores which brought people through the city to look and feel and hear various um, aspects of the environment often um, uh, choreographed via visual means in terms of a map through the city and then some basic directions. Uh, you know, how, how engineered they were in terms of the conclusions one would draw from them. And so, um, you know, it, it's, um, it creates this, this sort of interesting tension <laughs> between, um, uh, you know, getting people immediately interacting with their environment, seeing the environment through other people's eyes and, um, you know, uh, sort of this idea of progressively exposing participants to environmental problems and opportunities that had already been foreseen by the firm. So it, sort of this balancing act. But in a lot of ways, the participants were along the way sort of would recognize that they were being guided uh, to a certain degree, uh, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were resentful of the process. They actually, I mean, I think in a lot of ways there was a lot of positive feedback about understanding um, the, um, the environment again through through this these other perspectives and, and the idea of sort of breaking down cultural stereotypes and environmental preconceptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these these notes of critique sort of weave in in really interesting, really subtle ways uh, throughout the. Uh, more, uh, I suppose, case-driven chapters. And so we, uh, just to, to preface this for those who have not had a chance to look at the book, yet we hear about, um, we hear about work in San Francisco, in Minneapolis, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, Portland, of course, you discussed at length, the um, famous to semi-famous uh, Seattle Freeway Park, a uh, park planned uh, atop, uh, uh, a major interstate highway uh, that... One of my most favorite places. Yeah, up, I'm sorry I didn't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> no, up until that point had utterly riven downtown Seattle in two. Um, we hear about um, a, a smaller and probably less well-known uh, project in Rochester, uh, uh, upstate New York. Um, and then we hear about workshop activity again in Fort Worth, um, in Everett, Washington, Charlottesville, Virginia, and then in... Cleveland, and in each case, these 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 tensions appear and never fully disappear. Um, you um, you you stake out a really interesting, um, I think, really really nuanced position on Halpern, who who took urban renewal as a phenomenon, as a as a funding source, um, to be an opportunity. Um, we can read his work as putting forth. A particular critique of some of the really heavy-handed, really uh, Creatively destructive um, uh, urban renewal uh, uh, programs, but as you say, it's not exactly a sort of social justice oriented, not exactly a 
uh, sort of explicitly political register of critique. So it goes both ways. Um, but this is great. Um, we are uh, coming we're coming to the end of the uh, interview. Um, and um, I know that you are also a uh, practitioner. You are, in fact, a uh, uh, landscape and urban designer. And I wonder if you could say um, a little bit about how some of these tensions, some of these uh, lessons, inspirations, cautionary tales have one way or another sort of informed uh, your practice. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, so my practice is called Foreground Design Agency. I'm also an active faculty at the University of Southern California, and, um, and I, I do a lot of my design research, um, you know, through my um, my teaching practice. So I mean, we, we do studios throughout the the Southern California region. Um, but you know, Foreground is, is I consider it a critical practice. Uh, you know, it's intended to address. Um, both the social and, and the sentient, and I would say the social and the sentient in a critical way and in experimental ways that are highly related to some of the, the, the themes that uh, emerged during my research on the Halperins. And we tackle projects, my partner and I tackle pro- diverse projects. Um, we won a prize for our competition entry to the uh, Pruitt Igo Now Housing mm-hmm. um, International Ideas competition, which was recognizing um, that uh, the 40-year um, uh, years had passed since the demolition of that infamous housing development. And, you know, we framed it as an infrastructure of memory. But also, you know, we, we do projects that are related to issues of food security by speculating on the future of food production. Uh, we did a project here. I mean, and this is just to give you a range of the projects. So, you know, Pruitt Igo being a, a real sort of relic of the, of the period that I'm studying in terms of the Halperins and some of the, you know, since uh, the book came out just now, believe it or not, four years ago, um, you know, I've been doing a, a fair amount of excavating of the work of some of the Halperins contemporaries in the 1960s, really looking at some of the activist methods that were emerging at the time and, you know, how these might inform contemporary city shaping. And so using that as a platform to think about, obviously to think about projects in my own practice. Um, so, you know, there, there, it ranges from, you know, really addressing the 1950s, 60s inheritance, but also, you know, we're talking about issues of food security, much more contemporary issues. Um, not that that wasn't an issue in the 50s and 60s, but, you know, this is something that we really need to delve into right now. Um, and especially in Southern California and the adjacency of the Central Valley. And um, So, you know, we here in Rome, for instance, we prototyped um, some clothing that grows edible plants and evolves, you know, into working ecosystems that can self-sustain themselves, which serves as sort of an art piece, but a critique of um, of sort of where we're headed. Um, so you know, we, this idea of having a, sort of a critical social practice is something that's emerged out of the Halpern research and has definitely informed my work. That's fantastic. Um, are you uh, working on another book now or other writing projects um, while yes. you are over there in Rome? I'd love to hear about those. Yes. Um, so I'm currently writing. I'm slowly, but currently, um, writing a, a book about landscape architecture as a critical social practice, just like I mentioned. Um, but I'm examining these histories of the 1960s, as I mentioned, as well as current practices and methods uh, through the lens of the, of the performative. So thinking about landscape as a register stage and agent of of performance and I mean the real so the perform the performative is actually sort of the, the larger lens but to just really synthesize it it's a a book that um, really focuses on how social social sociocultural dynamics can be a catalyst for physical design taking cues from Lawrence Halperin, some of the contemporaries I've studied and, and, wrote, and wrote about since, like Carl Lynn, how they've translated um, they've translated social consciousness into design action and built work. So it's sort of challenging the common conception that socially oriented design practice uh, practices are often sacrifice the the spatial, material, formal qualities of the of the landscape architectural project. So, in, you know, really talking about how to make that translation 
um, from um, between socially oriented design or design as service with design with a capital D as this material art and um, and talk and really it's a book about methodologies uh, related to both the 60s methodologies that are being excavated but some of the methodologies that I'm experimenting with in my practice. It sounds fantastic, a profoundly historical project, but profoundly contemporary as well. Um, yeah. Look forward to seeing that. Uh, it's always a slow process, but I'm sure it yes. will. It will. Uh, it will materialize. Um, thank you so much for discussing this book uh, today. Um, city choreographer uh, Lawrence Halperin in Urban Renewal America. We've been talking with its author um, Allison Bick Hirsch. The book was put out by University of Minnesota Press, um, 2014 is the publication date. This is New Books in Geography. My name is Peter Ekman, and thank you for listening. <laughs>